0: The history of science and medicine you were taught in school doesn't tell the whole story. Our legacy is full of unsung heroes who made incredible contributions that just haven't been recognized, and there are too many suppressed stories of exploitation under the guise of scientific research. As biomedical scientists and seekers of justice, we want to uncover the hidden side of science and make these stories known. People of all races, genders, nationalities, sexualities, and abilities have always been essential to pushing the field forward. It's time for us all to reclaim the bench.
1: How is this going to be?
0: Well, I think most podcast people just say their names quickly and like a brief thing about,
1: or at least just your name, like, yeah, so kind of like, um, Welcome to the first episode of Reclaim the Bench. I'm your co-host, Jamal.
0: And I'm your other co-host, Megan. Today, for our first episode, we'll be talking about a controversial figure in U.S. medical history. On this episode, you'll hear about what med school was like in the mid-1800s. Spoiler alert, it was a whole lot of white guys. Uh, You'll learn a little bit about what the bladder bone is not connected to. Right, Jamal? Right. Right what it really means to give medical consent, and finally, how the conditions of slavery 150 years ago still affect the health of Black women today. Also, just a brief note about content. We're discussing slavery today and the exploitation of enslaved women, which isn't exactly a light topic, but there's a lot of darkness in history where light should be shed. So that is what we are trying to do today.
1: On that note... A brief sidebar about terminology, we try to use enslaved person instead of slave, alongside of the wisdom of Tanahasi cults, because these people were not defined solely by their enslavement. That's actually a movement in medicine in general. In the past, people might have said diabetic or schizophrenic, but now we're moving towards saying a person with diabetes or a person with schizophrenia. It's one aspect of a person. It does not define their whole self. So with that, let's get into it. This week, we're going to be talking about J. Merriam Sims.
0: So this is something, I think I heard about it first and told you about it.
1: Yeah, and I kept calling him the godfather of the <laughs> Comedy. <laughs> But for the record, okay, people do call themselves the godfather of things. They do. But I don't know the It's
0: a little creepy to say the godfather of gynecology.
1: I mean, a father of gynecology is, It's also
0: creepy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's
1: also oxymoron. Definitely. Oh, I mean, yeah. At least it's not the stepfather of gynecology.
0: <laughs> the creepy stepfather. Yeah. Oh, my god. Well, anyway, now that we've completely derailed, um, the uncle, the uncle. <laughs> but like the fun uncle, yeah, like the good one that you actually want to see. And,
1: and, and for the record, with this whole father business, I mean, <laughs> it doesn't take much for someone to be deemed the father of something. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of ridiculous. For real. Yeah, if you are the first to discover something, or maybe just the more most popular, even if it's mm-hmm. not that significant you'll get a statue built after you it yeah. and called the father or something.
0: Like he probably just had a crony who wrote this in some <laughs> journal. He's like, oh, this guy's the father of gynecology. And then it just stuck. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: it's also interesting too, especially um, with issues around COVID, you can see how smart people will also ignore the facts oh, and yeah. kind of just go with the momentum of, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, this person's an expert in this or mm-hmm. this is true without any real definitive proof behind it or facts. They'll just abandon all of their scientific training and just believe the hype. That's
0: uh, true. Mm -hmm. So this guy's been hyped up for a long time. So James Marion Sims is his full name. Like Jamal said, he is, quote unquote, the father of modern gynecology, which we both think is kind of creepy and probably not too accurate. But we'll get into a lot more of why that is in a minute. To learn about this topic, we got in touch with Lisa Nicholas, who is an MD and the chair of obstetrics and gynecology at UCLA.
1: I mean, you're a medical student, so can you first explain what obstetrics, (laughs) obstetrics?
0: No, you hit it right the first time. Obstetrics?
1: There you go. And gynecology, it's like, what's the difference? Like, we always kind of lump those two things in, like, OBGYN, but like, what's the O and what's the G?
0: Yeah, so... (laughs) Um, so the first part, the obstetrics, is the care surrounding pregnancy and childbirth and the period soon after the baby is born. So that's called the postpartum period. Um, so that whole thing, like pregnancy and having the baby and the people who are actually delivering the baby, taking care of the mom throughout this period of so many different changes to her body. That's the whole um,
1: that's the O. So can ev- can anybody just specialize in O? So... Like, I'm an O. You can... I'm an obstetrics.
0: In the U.S., at least, I'm an obstetrics. <laughs> They're called the obstetricians. Um, oh, that's the full name. I don't name. know why
1: I thought that it was an eye doctor.
0: <laughs> that's an ophthalmologist. Okay. Yeah. Here
1: we go.
0: <laughs> so in the U.S., you have to train in both together, obstetrics and gynecology. Oh, okay. And gynecology is the care of women, pretty much throughout the rest of her life. So anything from like the onset of puberty, any problems with menstruation, anything like that, all the way through menopause and all of those pelvic organs and like pretty much anything that can go wrong there and just keeping you healthy in general. So usually people practice them together, but you can actually be just an obstetrician or just a gynecologist after you've trained in both fields.
1: Oh, okay. So
0: some people spend all of their time Working with, like, pregnant women and babies, some people spend all their time just doing normal pelvic exams or, like...
1: So this might be a stupid question. So pediatricians, (laughs) like, they are not involved with, like, child delivery or...
0: No, pediatricians are not. Okay. They will often come and check on the baby within a few hours after um, he or she is born. Just to like make sure they're healthy, they like check their hips. It's kind of a fun little exam. Like yeah. I shadowed once, and they just kind of look at their eyes and like feel their pulse and just play with the newborn baby. I mean, it's not that simple. <laughs> they they're obviously doing some very important checks.
1: And that's you said that's the pediatrician. That's a pediatrician. It. So I couldn't. Uh... Ob- obstetrician.
0: Okay. I think the obstetrician also obstetrician. does that. Yeah, obstetrician. Yeah.
1: That, that word is just not. Doesn't. Fly <laughs> <every day. laughs>
0: yeah, I mean, you want. I guess you want to have as many people as possible taking a look at the baby because mm-hmm. they have different specialties, so they're probably looking at it from sort of a different perspective. Oh. Okay. But then, like soon, and then there's also neonatologists, which are kind of a specialized area of pediatrics. So they're. Very specialized in just newborn babies. Okay. So, yeah, you have all these people whose fields kind of overlap, but um, they also have different trainings. So.
1: so, I'm assuming it became more refined over time. Maybe yeah. at the time period we'll be talking about today.
0: Um, yeah, I don't think they had all it these was just subdivisions all lumped yeah. into
1: one. <laughs> yeah. uh, and as we'll come to find out, even ones who weren't trained specifically in this, mm-hmm. which, you know, I don't really know why. Just hearing you break this down, it mm-hmm. just seems like something that you would at least want women in the field doing. Yeah. But at this time where J. Merriam Sims was practicing, mm-hmm. it was all men. Yeah. That doesn't even make sense.
0: I know. So can you Which bring us... Which is probably
1: us... why they did everything wrong.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so can you bring us to that time period? So when are we actually talking about here? Should we go back to why he's called yeah. the father? Should we do that? Uh, so
1: naturally, one would think that the father of modern gynecology must have made considerable contributions to the field. Uh, Megan, can you mm-hmm. describe Sim's claim to fame?
0: Well, yeah. So from what we researched, it seems that his claim to fame is really one surgery that he worked on and quote unquote perfected, according to his contemporaries, and mm-hmm. um, so this is a surgery for a condition called a vesicovaginal fistula, which at times caused a lot of discomfort and embarrassment for women in this time period, which is like the mid-1800s.
1: Okay. Well, can you <clears throat> just briefly explain a bit um, what a vesicovaginal fistula is? Yeah, no, you we said that so this- well.
0: So yeah, much better than, than
1: op- the- op- <laughs> op- <laughs> obstricians. Yeah, we, we did kind of discuss this a little bit with uh, Dr. Nicholas, mm-hmm. right? But I think it might be important for people to know like what this ailment is yeah. and why it was like important to solve, but maybe why these claims may have been inflated.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. If we break it down into the different parts of the words, they're mostly Latin. So in medical school, most of the medical terms are actually... Greek and Latin based. So I've heard it said that you're pretty much learning an entirely new language. Like I had one professor tell us that we could expect to learn 10,000 new words over the course of our medical training. So it's all of these conditions, the specialties, the pathology, like all of it. It's just all these very specialized terms. So this term i thought, all right, I'll go look up the roots, be a good medical student, and (laughs) I knew what it was, but I didn't know where the words came from. So first, a fistula. This is an abnormal connection between two structures of the body, so two organs or two blood vessels, anything like that. Can you guess what that word means? Fistula?
1: Um, yeah.
0: (laughs) I'm really putting you on the spot here.
1: No, you don't want to know... (laughs) What's coming to my mind?
0: <laughs> okay, so it actually just means
1: flute. <laughs> or okay, like that's not pipe. what I was
0: thinking. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I can't let you just <laughs> sit there and think for too long. No,
1: I thought, but mm-hmm. you just didn't want <laughs> okay.
0: okay, well, now you're going to remember because it means like pipe, pipe. which is kind of weird. Yes. It's just like a connection between organs, but uh-huh. I guess if you think of it as like plumbing. Okay. But, but also flute. So anyway... And then the word that we have before fistula tells us where this abnormal connection actually is. So in this case, it's vesico-vaginal. So the first part, vesico, comes from the Latin word for bladder, which is just vesica. So it's a connection from the bladder to the vagina. Vaginal is pretty straightforward. And so those are not normally supposed to be
1: connected. <laughs> Oh, okay. okay.
0: <laughs> yeah, so you're learning a lot about female anatomy today.
1: I, I only know about the brain. anything else. I'm He's a neuroscientist, point. yeah. It's but, all right. But now I know. The yeah. The bladder bone is not supposed to be the connected bladder to the bone. vagina bone. <laughs> but anyway, that sounds really painful. Um, how does it happen, though?
0: Um, so from what I read and what we learned from Dr. Nicholas, it's usually due to obstructed childbirth. So when the mom is in labor, the baby could get stuck somewhere in the birth canal, and that can actually press on the surrounding tissue. It cuts off the blood flow. And then when that tissue is not getting enough oxygen, individual cells can actually die. And it's sort of like when you have a heart attack. So if part of your heart isn't getting enough blood those heart cells can die and then that part of the heart stops working and that's why after a heart attack people have more trouble with just cardiac function getting enough blood to the rest of their body
1: so isn't the word for it called ischemia
0: ischemia yeah exactly so you
1: can also have ischemia not just in the heart or brain yeah like we're a stroke yeah but in Mm -hmm. vesico vaginal
0: yep (laughs) yeah not in bones (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> these are not bones we're talking about. So no, yeah. it's actually in, yeah, it's the wall of the vagina becomes ischemic. So like Jamal said, that's the word for tissue death or after the lack of oxygen. So when that happens, the walls that normally separate these structures become weakened. And then um, you have inflammatory cells coming in and eating away the dead tissue. And that can cause this abnormal hole to form between the bladder and the vagina. And then that causes some just leakage, like basically incontinence. So the person is leaking urine, they don't have control over those functions. So that can cause persistent smell, discomfort, embarrassment. I mean, like you can imagine, like yeah. if you if you don't have any control over your bladder, that's <laughs> pretty bad. Um, it would be very uncomfortable to live with most of the time. Okay. All the time.
1: So Sims wanted to rescue women from...
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The (laughs) eyebrow raise. Uh, Yeah. So like on the surface, of course, you'd be like, yeah, that's something that we want to fix. That sounds pretty um, uncomfortable and debilitating for people to live with. But of course, our goal in this podcast isn't to give more positive attention to this sort of demographic. So, you know, there's a lot more to this story. And we're really excited to get into it with our first episode. So one of Jamal's passions is to learn more about people, uh, what drives them, how they got to a certain point. So he's our biographical side of things in this podcast. I think you spent some time learning about who this guy was, maybe like what his motivations were, how he even got into gynecology. Can you tell us more about who Sims is and where he's from?
1: Yeah, so Sims was born in 1813 in Lancaster County, South Carolina. In 1832, while an undergraduate, he took a medical course under his future father-in-law at the Medical University of South Carolina. Mm -hmm. At this time, the Medical University of South Carolina promoted its distinction from other medical universities by advertising the use of enslaved people for medical research. Yikes. Yeah, there's like, there's even... Old documentations of flyers where yeah. they sort of advertise that you know they're in which they were at the mm-hmm. time a leading medical school in the south because their ability to practice on enslaved people. Oh my um, gosh! In a way that I guess healthcare practitioners practice on dummies or yeah. whatever they use now in, in mm-hmm. medical or cadavers. Yeah, uh, I don't know, but they were using enslaved individuals,
0: so this was not like an under the surface thing. This was they were literally advertising it on flyers, yeah, they like, were
1: advertising. And geez. in a way, I believe, um, they thought they were doing something noble hmm. because it gave the slave owners uh, a bit of a break because it allowed for free medical care to mm-hmm. enslaved people. With an agreement from their owners to allow these individuals to be used. Yeah,
0: from their as, owners, key word, right? Yeah. Not yeah. from the individuals. Yeah, it, it mm-hmm. wasn't for
1: these in, individuals. Yeah. So the motivation wasn't, you know, there's this population of people that's underserved mm-hmm. and we're going to, you know, use our platform to um, open up free clinics. Right. So it was more like in order to to convince their slave owners, their slave masters. Mm-hmm. To allow their property to be yeah. used, they offered them a break in their oh. medical care. Jeez. So, um, okay. And after that, he um, finished his undergraduate work, and then he attended medical school in 1835 at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania.
0: Okay. So, when he attended medical school, what was the training like in 1835? So, if you went to a medical school, who are you seeing? If you look around, mm-hmm. what are you learning? Or did they actually know anything about medicine at this time?
1: I mean, they did, but at this time, uh, the medical training was, of course, not as rigorous as it is today, mm-hmm. uh, and that's to be expected. Our advances in healthcare and healthcare training has improved tremendously since then, yeah. uh, and as you can imagine, as with most fields at the time, the medical schools were just full of rich white men mm-hmm. who. Had just a bit of interest and could afford the education. Yeah,
0: so pretty uh, different than today, where you have to go through all of these standardized tests. Yeah, and yeah. Do exactly. all this
1: volunteering. And... It was not the cream of the crop. Right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and I don't know. Um, maybe you can just quickly give us a ballpark figure. How many people apply to a typical medical school, like like our university? Like how uh, many students will apply, and like what percentage of those students will actually get in?
0: My, for our university, I think about 6,000 people apply a year Mm -hmm. and our matriculating class is 180. And so I think they accept more people than that because people get accepted to multiple schools. But my understanding is about 5% of the people who apply.
1: And that's that's here. And there's probably more people applying for like Hopkins. Oh yeah.
0: Like top, top 20 schools. It's
1: like 1%. And so you need like really high like MCAT scores, mm-hmm. really high GPA, extracurricular yeah. activities.
0: Yep. Shadowing doctors. Yeah. Volunteering. Yeah. Great academics. I mean, don't get me wrong. There is still a bias towards the privileged in terms of wealth in the U.S. Because mm-hmm. you can afford the better tutoring. You have better yeah. opportunities for extracurriculars. But you can't just buy your way into a school like
1: just show up exactly
0: and be like here's the tuition money like (laughs) that seems like what it was back then
1: yeah well yeah from that's exactly how it was from my research Mm -hmm. and even still that it was pretty easy to sort of get in if you came from money if you were affluent Mm -hmm. sims was still a lackluster student (laughs) (laughs) he was completely uninspired by medicine and had entertained the thought of leaving medicine because it wasn't a huh. lucrative, enough, lucrative enough career.
0: So he's already, you know, a stand up guy yeah. that
1: we want as our father of gynecology. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah. he, he <laughs> wanted the prestige, the mm-hmm. money, the fame, and apparently it just wasn't going well for him. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think the disinterest was compounded after the death of his first two patients, mm-hmm. uh, in which, you know, he decided to pack up and leave South Carolina and move to. Montgomery, Alabama. okay. So he eventually became a plantation physician. So an uninspired medical student who got into medical school because of his privilege didn't do well. Mm-hmm. And so he ends up here as a plantation physician. Yikes. So this is already a recipe for him to come oh, do some soul no. searching yeah. on sort of this vulnerable, um, exploited community already.
0: I already know what happens, and this is still making me just <laughs> get, like, the shivers. <laughs> Since we know him as tied to gynecology, was he actually trained in gynecology during this period?
1: Right. Yeah. Um, at this time, the study of gynecology was virtually non-existent. All male doctors in training were not practically taught about childbirth and women's health. They used only dummies, as the study of the female reproductive organs was taboo and repugnant. Oh, strong words. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, um, I came across similar things in my research. So one fun fact was that if male physicians did have to do a pelvic exam on a real woman and not a dummy, They didn't inspect her anatomy visually, which is what we're taught in med school is one of the most important things like inspection. I mean, you can see so much about someone's health just by looking at their whatever their complaint is. So, but yeah, they didn't actually look at her pelvic area. They just looked straight into her eyes the whole
1: time,
0: (laughs) (laughs) which is unimaginably awkward. awkward. (laughs) Uh, I don't think anyone would prefer that. They're just feeling around down there and just like staring into the
1: yeah. soul. The first person to find anything <laughs> significant would yeah. be the father of gynecology. <laughs> yeah, truly. <laughs> at this point. The first person to just look down. Yeah, right. Which was Sims essentially from what yeah. we were <laughs> out. He looked down. Okay. Actually, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, this is the Sims position. <laughs> <laughs> to actually look at the
0: Truly. Uh, in mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, With that said, let's fast forward to when Sims actually began to operate on women. So when did he start to build his reputation in the field?
1: Uh, Well, let me first add that Sims has received scrutiny by various scholars and advocacy groups for experimenting operating on at least 10 enslaved women between the years 1845 to 1849 in Alabama, most notably without the use of anesthetics, which we'll get into. However, even before his experiments on women, he used enslaved children as test subjects under the assumptions that blacks were intellectually inferior due to anatomical differences. Jeez.
0: Was this a common
1: uh viewpoint at the time?
0: I would assume I, so.
1: Yeah, I think it I think it was. And actually, I'll bring up something interesting later. Okay. Um remind me to, to mention yeah. something about a recent study that was done amongst medical students and residents, so oh. your peers. Oh, uh, so, no. yeah, pre- so I'll answer that question yeah. uh, a little bit later. But if you remember what I talked about him going to the Medical University of South Carolina mm-hmm. for this undergraduate medical course for yeah. his future father-in-law, yep. I mean, this type of behavior was already ingrained. Into mm. the fabric of his training. Sure. Uh, his Accepted, like training.
0: completely yeah, his lackluster <laughs> training. <laughs>
1: so, yeah, I mean, so this disdain for black life was already instilled in him in becoming a practicing physician.
0: Yeah, that's pretty terrifying. So at this point, with that background, I think we've come to the most infamous, controversial part of the story. Still controversial, actually, which is, Jamal is going to get into, which is crazy. Sims eventually became a plantation physician. So from what I read for a very long time, while there were enslaved people in America, medical care was usually based on healing practices that were taught and carried on by family members from Africa. So even though the medical field today tends to dismiss what we think of as homeopathic or folk medicine, Mm -hmm. there's actually a lot of wisdom that has been passed down from that over centuries. And in this case, there was one report that some of these treatments were really quite effective. There was even a case in Tennessee where white patients petitioned to allow an enslaved healer to actually be officially licensed. So they must have known what they mm.
1: were doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. So well, how did plantation physicians come into the picture anyway? And why would plantation owners, uh, slave owners, uh, care enough to provide a standard of care to enslave people beyond their traditional practices?
0: So right around the time we're discussing in the 1840s, Western medicine began to become more recognized in the American South. So news spread pretty quickly back then, but um, and especially to the South, which was very fairly isolated. But by then the word got out that, oh, there's this practice that has been developed and designed by European men. And of course, then it's obviously better. So Slave owners, obviously, as we well know. (laughs) Um, At this point in U.S. history, slave owners couldn't legally bring more people in from Africa, um, couldn't kidnap any more people. So great, at least that's written out of the legal code. But they could still create, I mean, it's a gross word for it, but they could literally create as many new slaves as they wanted with pregnancies of current slaves. So any child born to... A, an enslaved mother became a slave themselves. So the reproductive health of their slaves was actually pretty important. They wanted to make sure that their free labor was dependable, that they had a steady supply of laborers, and that included in large part forcing enslaved women to have many children. And they started spending large amounts of money on so-called professional care for slaves, this Western medicine, including gynecologic care. But I am not fooled at all that this was out of any concern for their well-being. I even read a report recently in a book that we talked about, Killing the Black Body. by
1: Dorothy Roberts. Yeah, Yeah.
0: so it's a great book, and it really, um, Jamal and I ran into it when we were um, researching this episode, but from uh, one excerpt in there, it talks about how the slave owner both wanted the women to produce more children, but also had to use The women as, like, field hands and producers themselves. And there are reports of, like, heavily pregnant women who weren't working hard enough for the slave owners. So they would literally dig a ditch large enough for, like, her belly and have her lay face down in the dirt so that the child is protected and then whip her. What? Yeah. So they were whipping, like, heavily pregnant women to get them to work harder, but at the same time, like, out of care for the baby. Yeah, exactly. Isn't that the most disgusting thing?
1: Yeah, it's it's pretty ridiculous. Yeah.
0: So, like, they didn't care about these women's health. Like, you cannot be fooled by that for a second. They would do whatever they wanted to them, but they just wanted their babies also.
1: (laughs) It seems like, in this case, the worst parts of medicine at this time come into focus. Megan, you mentioned this earlier, but at this time, Sims began to realize that female reproductive surgery was a relatively untapped field and that maybe this was a way that he can make a name for himself. He developed a new way of visualizing the female pelvic anatomy, sort of by chance, right? Like we talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, but when a white woman he was with fell off her horse and had pelvic pain, mm-hmm. uh, he was seeing where sh- she was hurt and he realized that with a certain position... Uh, he could visualize the track much easier. So going back to what we were discussing earlier, what, this is called Sim's position, by the way. I guess just by chance, he happened to look and not for a yeah. standard gynecological exam. Right. But just like in the of middle of a pain.
0: dusty field, he's like looking at her pelvis. And so Sim's developed this new method of visualizing the vagina. After this, he realized no one was actually doing gynecologic work, and so this was a way that he could get in there and make some money. He was interested in surgery, and he wanted to work on surgical correction. My guess is that he turned to vesicovaginal fistula because, as Jamal said, he had this easy access to enslaved women um, as test subjects. And quite a few of the known risk factors for fistula applied to women in these horrible conditions. So it's not something we see much in the U.S. anymore because of our prenatal care. And if it does happen, it can be quickly corrected. It is seen sometimes in um, very isolated areas, places of with high poverty rates in the world. But um, back in the 1800s, it was common among enslaved women because... Risk factors include lack of any sort of skilled birth attendant, so they didn't have anyone on hand to help with the baby delivery, lack of prenatal care, um, duration of the labor, so long time in uh, labor, young age at delivery, and enslaved women often had kids as young as 13, and lack of family planning, so just an excessive amount of children that they were forced to have, and poor nutrition. So they really fall into most of these categories. And like I said, they were even being like whipped while seven months pregnant. So so they definitely were not getting good prenatal care. <laughs> and so this uh, fistula, like I said before, it can cause some social isol- isolation and discomfort. Just, you know, if you think of someone who's incontinent and problems with future fertility. So it's really horrifying to discuss like the way that these women were treated both all the time and during pregnancy but to me it's really important to actually spell out because it's one of those things that we always glaze over when we learn about the history like when we learn about us slavery in public school i don't know it's it's not this like horrifying picture like you know that it's bad but we don't talk about the details of like how horribly people were treated
1: I, I entirely agree mm-hmm. um, you know my real history lessons didn't come from uh, what we learned about in school and yeah. in formal education and that's by design right that's mm-hmm. by design of oh, yeah. the people who write these textbooks uh-huh. and try to preserve the integrity for um, this country which makes talking about race still kind of taboo mm-hmm. now because you know as a African-American, I learned the same history in a way that you have as a white American. Yeah. Yet looking deeper into my people and my culture Mm and um, revealing uh, what happened to us elicits a different response into me. Mm -hmm. And so now I have to try to convince uh, my white counterparts, Mm -hmm. this is why this is important. Right. Right. And Mm -hmm. so if they're not educated on it, like you can't really even have this conversation. Yeah. And there's really no incentive to be educated mm-hmm. on it if this is not really what you may consider your history, right? right? This yeah. is just, again, something that was glazed over. Mm-hmm. You said
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's important that we acknowledge the truth of what happened in our nation. I mean, like you said, it's taboo for us to talk about race. But if we don't, there's no way to actually move forward,
1: heal those divisions, yeah, even uh, we're talking about like public school, right? But yeah. if you don't stop at some point, as you know, I mean, we're both graduate students. Mm-hmm. The, these misconceptions can go all the way through to your professional oh, training. Yeah. And so if you're never corrected about these things, we'll mm-hmm. just keep glorifying people and building mm-hmm. statues about them and yeah. thinking that they, they were these noble heroes unless we really you know, understand the, the real history. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Which is like
1: our inspiration for doing this, Yeah. (laughs) So um, to get back into this history, who were these women that were exploited by SIMS? Um, We should acknowledge the names of some of these women, right? At least the ones that were documented.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, we came into this, Jamal and I did, knowing that we want to tell the story of the people who are exploited and make sure that we focus on that as well. So It's important to name the people who this happened to. Unfortunately, we only know the names of three of these women to our knowledge, to what we researched, Lucy, Anarka, and Betsy. And one of these was Anarka, Anarka Westcott. She was one of the first and underwent at least 30 excruciating experimental surgeries at Sims Hands with no pain treatment in an extremely sensitive area of her body starting at 17 years old. Oh, my God. He didn't know what he was doing. He had no idea what he was doing. It should not take 30 surgeries. Clearly. And he kept going back.
1: Damn. 30 surgeries on this poor young woman. Yeah. Uh, It's just so many things wrong with this scene. I mean, she's only 17, Mm -hmm. and she's already producing uh, children for slave owners' economic investment, as you described earlier. She was suffering from a vesicovaginal fistula Mm -hmm. and then being operated on 30 times in this delicate area of the body with no anesthesia. When we talked to Dr. Nicholas about this, uh, she barely had words for how painful this could be, not to mention being an enslaved young woman working on a plantation. These women were being exploited both economically and for the sake of medical advancement.
0: Yeah, and the scenery of these surgeries, these experiments, was horrific. These procedures were extremely invasive, humiliating, performed in the Sims position, which you discussed, which is when the woman is on her hands and knees being inspected, fully conscious, in unimaginable pain, no pain treatment, with, by some reports, 12 doctors all observing this going on.
1: Wow, but there's this famous painting by Robert Thom, um, if that's how you pronounce it, uh, that portrays this. Um, it's a it's a very famous picture actually. Yeah. It portrays this scene of Sims' procedures as taking place with Anarka sitting politely on a table, uh, with a few distinguished colleagues of Sims standing around her, listening to his training, and two other enslaved women peeking around a curtain put up for Anarka's privacy. Oh, so nice. Three the events. <laughs> You're saying this is not an actual (laughs) explanation, right, (laughs) nigga? That's a little bit of
0: a leading question,
1: huh? Of course not.
0: Um, It's reported that Sim's colleagues deemed the procedures too gruesome and consequently had to recruit other experimentees to hold each other down during the procedure instead of the colleagues holding her down themselves.
1: And why didn't he use anesthesia again?
0: (sighs) You know what? That is a damn good question. He appears ahead of his time in sanitary and sterile measures from his writings and reports. He was a diligent reader of medical journals, even became interested in the history of ether, which was an anesthetic by 1850. So the fact that he didn't know about or use anesthesia, either ether or nitrous oxide, which is laughing gas, is very suspect. It had begun to be used since 1842. And was becoming widespread throughout the U.S. and Europe by 1846, which is what we're talking about. So even after moving to New York City and later operating on white women around 1850, after he had used black women to perfect his technique, so to say, um, he realized they couldn't stand the pain. But he still made no effort to attempt pain control. It just, to me, it displays his view of all women patients as objects to be fixed, not humans to be treated.
1: Yeah, and that's a um, a sort of a misconception, almost, is that Simps only didn't use anesthesia on enslaved women. Yeah. But I imagine that the white women in New York City at least had the ability to consent, correct? Yeah, Um, I would think so. Could enslaved women even consent? And what would consent even look like at this time?
0: So we know that consent did exist at this time, the concept of it. So he wasn't just a project of his time, as people say. There are historical examples of white men and women who were asked to consent to experimental medical procedures. Mm -hmm. So consent is a really big topic in medicine, and it means getting someone's permission to perform a procedure or any sort of other uh, medical intervention. So according to the FDA, this involves providing the potential participant with adequate information to allow for an informed decision um, about participation in the clinical investigation they have to understand all the risks and benefits, and that is the job of the healthcare provider to explain to them and make sure they understand. You have to go and check and have them sort of repeat back to you that they understand what's happening. They have to voluntarily participate no coercion, no convincing, not from family members, not from the doctor. It has to be their own decision, and these people can end their involvement at any time.
1: So, just listening to you. Describe this yeah. official definition of consent. I'm not sure that uh, people today fully um, yeah uh, fall into the guidelines of informed consent.
0: I don't. I don't think they always do. I think that some people do at times cut corners, and I can't say that every single patient knows exactly what's exactly all the risks and benefits of everything they're undergoing. So that's something that I think the medical field could work on is being better about that, even for people who have. Lower literacy and people who are not English speaking. Um, those are two groups that often fall in the
1: cracks. But let's go back to something you said earlier about the syntax or the nomenclature. Mm-hmm. You said professor told you you'd learn 11,000. Was that was something that right like number?
0: that? Like 10,000, yeah. 10,000
1: new words or terms. Mm-hmm. Like, so you talk about people not having sort of um, the literacy to understand. Uh, medical treatment. I'm not sure if I have the literacy to completely understand if you you talk about this vocabulary being so large and extensive. Uh And then you talk about uh, having to convey and informed consent, like what's actually happening and Mm -hmm. update the patient, right? Yeah. What's happening, what the next move is. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Like even you as a highly educated graduate student, you can't know all of those terms. Like it's, it's a whole, you have to bring it to the person's level. And when we're going to the level of someone who can't even read, that's a challenge. So I don't, it's, it's a tough discussion because it's very hard and it takes a long time to make sure that someone who, who is not understanding you at first, to make sure that they get to that level. It's hard to sit down with a patient and walk through everything step by step in like layman's terms, but it's essential. We can't just be breezing past this stuff.
1: But I I would imagine that a barrier is, I mean, you mentioned like cultural differences, Mm -hmm. like for people who maybe are immigrants that don't speak English, Mm -hmm. that could be difficult. So maybe it's not that they're uneducated, but they're not necessarily educated in English, right? Yeah. But to me, this is really just describing like why we need more diversity. Oh, yeah. I mean, both of us have worked on looking at the numbers and these different disparities. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's pretty embarrassing, but at least if you have people that can represent the general population and understand different cultures, that may be a more effective way to gain informed consent Mm -hmm. and to um, better help educate patients um, when you can relate to them.
0: Absolutely. I agree very much. In this case, in the story, after this very formal definition I've given you, It's pretty clear that speaking of consent of these enslaved women is meaningless. I mean, you can't even have a discussion about it. They were enslaved, essentially chattel to be bought and sold, just like livestock, I mean, essentially. So they had to cooperate. They had to be stoic because, in this case, Sims was listening to their master or at least just became their master for the time that he was operating on them. They didn't have a choice. I mean, I told you about how they were so horribly beaten and whipped, even when pregnant, like at this point, they, they don't have a choice. They're going to be punished if they don't cooperate. So that is not consent. So Jamal, after going through this story, does the end that we got to, so namely Sims perfecting this technique and being able to, um, help some women who had fistula, does this justify the means that he went through? Was he a product of his time, as some people say, or just another individual who exploited the current circumstances?
1: Well, uh, I vehemently believe that the end does not justify the means here. I mean, for one, the lingering effects of slavery continue to exist today, however less overt. What we still see now is institutional racism, and healthcare is not an institution that is exempt to that. The CDC reports that pregnancy-related mortality ratio, or PRMR, is roughly four to five times higher in Black women than in whites. In addition, the unconscious bias about the perception of pain in Blacks directly affects health outcomes and how these patients are treated. Mm -hmm. So in 2016, uh, a study published in PNAS, which is a journal by the National Academy of Sciences, Researchers found that out of 222 white medical students and residents, more than half believe, (laughs) your peoples. Oh, no. (laughs) Uh, Out of 222 white medical students and residents, more than half believe that Blacks have biological differences, such as less sensitive nerve endings, which ultimately increase their pain tolerance.
0: That is horrifying. Yeah.
1: This is 2016. Yeah. Right? So... Does the end justify the means? No, not when we're still, you know, when we're still in the thick of it, when we're still dealing with these residual effects. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another example is that in 2017, actually, um, Pearson retracted racially insensitive language from a nursing textbook, which included, quote, Blacks often report higher pain intensity, higher pain intensity than other cultures. And think that suffering and pain are inevitable. (laughs) Uh, This is just one example. But I've seen, you know, with my own eyes during my undergraduate studies, textbooks that uh, refer to Blacks as being late and like how to schedule um, uh, appointments and um, using these uh, racial stereotypes for medical treatment. Yeah. Uh, My point is that work done by people like Sims, has contributed to amplifying racial stereotypes, misconceptions, and in neglect that still exists today. And that cannot be justified by his contributions.
0: Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. Uh, Big surprise from how we've talked about this topic so far. But Vesco vaginal fistula was uncomfortable and embarrassing It wasn't likely to be the primary source of pain in an enslaved woman's life, judging by how difficult her life was. The severity of the condition was likely exaggerated by the people who discussed it, so the white men, to justify the means that were gone to. The saviors. Oh, yeah, the saviors, Yeah. yeah. So this quote that I found from a really interesting article... Written about Sims in the 1970s, Uh, we'll link to it in the episode notes. Sims failed utterly to recognize his patients as autonomous persons, and his own personal drive for success cannot be minimized, especially as a balance to the enormous amount of praise accorded Sims for his work and for subsequent applications of the technique developed in Montgomery and elsewhere. And then it goes on to say, Sims did not intend to enter women's medicine. He, in fact, had a deep distaste for the treatment of, quote, women's diseases. Mm. This distaste was apparently overcome by his competitiveness with men in the development of new surgical techniques and by his desire for superiority and recognition in the male medical world of the 19th century. Sims also paved the way for an emphasis on invasive surgery as a treatment of preference for many, quote, female disorders. Again, <laughs> these are so, it's so painful. And yeah, like they didn't understand it. So they decided surgery was the way to fix these things instead of any sort of like natural or these aren't women. And they didn't actually study the women. They just kind of went in there and performed surgery
1: on them. What well, they didn't think it was a good idea to bring women into the medical field. Oh, no. And women high were enough representation.
0: Women did not have the intellectual capacity.
1: Yeah.
0: Don't be silly. Yeah. Don't be I silly. Forgot about that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then um, I I really think Dr. Nicholas said it best here. Uh, she had a great quote about it. So please insert her quote here. Now, but Jamal, this decision that we've come to, it's not unanimous among the medical field, is it? Which we were very surprised about.
1: No, Megan. Um, Actually, various scholars, scientists, and medical practitioners have come out against critics of Sims, especially in recent years after the removal of several of his statues across the country. Let's go down the list here. Oh, great. (laughs) And this is only the short list of many of his defenders. Uh This one guy, um, Erwin Kaiser, MD, uh, in 1978 stated in a publication in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Sims was insensitive to the status and needs of women, but in that he was a product of his error. Oh, so, uh, <laughs> yes, he was insensitive, but it's not his fault. He was a product of his error uh, because it wasn't expected to be noble if you lived in that time, apparently.
0: The bar is on the floor, in uh, other words. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> In uh, another example is um, in 2019, Leonard F. Vernon, a healthcare practitioner. In a, so just
0: last year, 2019. 2019, okay. just last year. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: Leonard F. Vernon, um, who I believe is a chiropractor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I won't judge, you
0: know. <laughs> Only a
1: little. He's just adjusting the the narrative here. Oh <laughs> no. <laughs> Euretha <laughs> um, Okay, in twenty nineteen, uh, Leonard F. Vernon, a healthcare practitioner in a seemingly well intended article, wrote in a journal of the National Medical Association, quote, removing images of Sims and erasing the history surrounding his him simultaneously removes the sacrifices and contributions to medicine made by African Americans. For without statues of STEM Of SIMS. Dialogue ceases, and thus future generations of African-American children will never know that their (laughs) ancestors were responsible for many of the cures in medicine today.
0: Are you kidding me? Okay, so this journal, the National Medical Association, that is an African-American organization. Is it really? Formed in response. That's where SNMA comes from. Student National Medical Association. Oh, so the National Medical Association was formed in response to the American Medical Association excluding Black Americans from membership. So this is an African American group.
1: I wonder if Leonard Vernon is African American himself. Yeah,
0: but just the idea behind that. I mean, we've talked about this, Jamal. It's it's a really uh, big discussion right now statues of these controversial figures and the way i see it is germany does not have statues of hitler and like that is not how you remember a cultural tragedy like a tragedy that happened in your nation's past you don't remember it with statues of the perpetrator those the generations of african-american children to quote him There are so many better ways to learn about this history than the statue of the man who inflicted pain on their mother's 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 grandmother. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, really. And Mm -hmm. again, this was a well-intended article, Yeah. actually. Like, he he wanted to sort of offer his perspective Mm -hmm. um, because, again, at this time, over the last few years, like, statues of Sims have been coming down. Yeah. And so, even this individual believed that um, keeping a statue up was a way to honor his contributions and also honor those who dedicated their life to it. I think it's just completely um, off base, mm-hmm. even in this well intended yeah. article and in this assessment. So, what would be better is if you want to have statues of anybody, at least have statues. Of the three women that we absolutely. can remember,
0: absolutely, yeah, uh, and
1: mm-hmm. the ones who endured this and yeah. you know have J. Miriam Sims sort of as a footnote, right, um, mm-hmm. in that conversation, yes, right? and not as uh, the statue, yeah. Anyway, um, mm-hmm. last but not least, oh. uh, and amongst <laughs> the most notable defender of Sims um, is L. Lewis Wall or L. L. Wall. He's a physician and anthropologist. And professor of anthropology and obstetrics and gynecology at Washington University at St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Wall has dedicated much of his career to women's reproductive health, specifically in vesicovaginal fistulas in African women. Mm-hmm. Um, Wall defends much of this criticism aimed at Sims from this vantage point, in, um, including in an article published in the Journal of Medical Ethics in uh, 2005, I believe. Recently. Yeah, this is still, but he mm-hmm. he's actually still a practicing physician and mm-hmm. uh, still a professor okay. at um, Washington University at St. Louis and is an adamant defender um, of J. Mary's. Wow. So even though he wrote this in 2005, yeah. again, when statues started coming mm-hmm. down, like he was one of those, one of the people that stood up. Uh, and this isn't
0: some middle of, the nowhere, middle of nowhere university. I yeah,
1: mean, but the it's, university it's a
0: well-respected medical university. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, respected, this guy is mm-hmm. uh clearly um, well educated. Uh MD PhD. Oh. And oh no, it's one of mine. <laughs> yeah. You know, how, you know how they can be. <laughs> I do. <laughs> so, and he um practices on African women now in yeah. vesicovaginal fistulas, yeah. which are really not that common anymore here, but right. maybe are common there. Right. So,
0: uh-huh.
1: you know, maybe he's the modern day uh, He
0: wants to be the white savior.
1: Yeah. That's that's uh, a
0: little bit alarming to me
1: yeah so that it's it's a very confusing perspective, and I'll get into the details yeah. of things that he wrote about so for one, he states in this article from two thousand five that Sims did not exploit these women but instead provided them with relief for a condition that was unbearable.
0: hmm, okay, yes, I definitely think that thirty surgeries on my vagina without anesthesia is relief yeah. <laughs> yes
1: thank you <laughs> it, exactly it's it's yeah, it's more bearable than. The vesicovaginal Yeah, apparently.
0: which is just incontinence, essentially.
1: In conjunction with this, Wall states that because vesicovaginal fissures were so painful, the evidence suggests that these women clamored for the chance to have Sims treat them. Uh, this, of course, comes from statements made by Sims himself, <laughs> not from any documentation of any of these women. Uh, yet Wall suggests that their alleged eagerness to be treated was indeed their <laughs> consent. I can't so, stop laughing. What? Yeah. So that that was, you know, uh, it, it was a pretty, um, I don't know, vigorous is the right word, but the tone, <laughs> but the tone of it. I mean, he he really was trying to, to take down uh, the criticisms that have been aimed at Sims one by one. Even in oh an abstract, he says these are the criticisms of Sims, and I'm going to tell you why they're wrong. Uh, but but there's there's even more to this than that. Oh no. um, I'll go to the last uh, point that he talked about mm-hmm. before I really give my assessment about this. Mm. Um, so he also defends the absence or use of anesthesia as consistent with surgical practice at the time since anesthesia did not become widely accepted until after Sims began his treatment and experimentation on slave women. So out of all mm-hmm. these points that he are taken down in this article, and I read the article yeah. uh, all the way through, one thing I didn't grasp from Wall. Who himself has dedicated his career to women's health, specifically an African women, mm-hmm. is the distinction that Sims carried out this trial and error approach on black enslaved women as opposed to white women. Right. He does state that enslaved women were vulnerable. In quotes, when mm. he uses the word vulnerable for enslaved women, he quotes it oh. as if this is a, sort of a narrative that they were vulnerable. But what? he admits that they are vulnerable in quotations. But beyond this, there's no real acknowledgement for the women who uh, dedicated their bodies. Simply just a defense and glorification of J. Mary Sims. So, you know, it seems like yeah. if anybody is going to be one who stands up for these women, it would be somebody like L. L. Wall. Uh-huh. You know, maybe he could clarify things that he believed uh-huh. are misconceptions, but you would think someone who's working directly, you know, with African women now yeah. in Africa, uh, taking trips to Africa and things like that that he would have more value for the life of these women. But instead, this uh, article on medical ethics and and, um, commentary that I've seen from Dr. Wall is just aimed at the critics of uh, J. Miriam Sims.
0: You know, I think you bring up a great point, too, that not addressing that point of why was it not practiced on white women is really important because we also know that... When he first brought this back to white women after he had completely, to his um, specifications, perfected it only on enslaved women. Mm -hmm. Once he brought it back and tried to implement it in white Americans and Europeans, those women could not handle the pain. They could not handle the pain. They asked him to stop. He didn't get through a a single completed surgery afterwards. And we know that black women do not have a higher pain tolerance it's just that these enslaved women didn't have a choice but to just submit to this. Like, mm-hmm. it is not a biological fact, even though we some people think that it is.
1: Yeah, well, half of those two well, hundred yeah, twenty-two to yeah. medical student-in-residence mm-hmm. last year, or a few years ago, yeah. uh, still think this. Right, But that's exactly right. And mm-hmm. I, again, this mm-hmm. is a, one of the more peculiar uh, defenders of J. Miriam Sims. Mm-hmm. And actually, I would love if we can sit down. And talk to Wall mm-hmm. it because it's just so many questions for me. And I would like to give, especially since he's still very active, I would like yeah. to give him an opportunity to say mm. or discuss why he feels this way and discuss his position. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, maybe that's uh, a future interview we can do.
0: Yeah, that uh, would be interesting.
1: It, w- it, would be, mm. <laughs> it would be interesting for sure. Um, but I, I do welcome it. So... But aside from uh, these select examples, there's are, there are still lots of Americans that are upset by the removal of statues of Sims and other controversial figures in U.S. history. Uh, in New York City, uh Sims statue has been moved to a cemetery, and a plaque next to the statue will explain Sims' work on Black slaves and will explicitly mention Lucy, Anarka, and Betsy Again, three of the women whose bodies were used in his research. Hmm. So, Megan, is there anything you'd like to add uh, about the state of women's health today aside from the few examples that we talked about earlier?
0: Yeah, so this is something that we get into a lot more with um, Dr. Nicholas. And so, if you are more interested in the legacy of obstetrics and gynecology today and how that affects black women in the U S in particular. um, I highly encourage you to check that interview out, um, on Patreon, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but one thing that I did want to discuss as we're finishing up is this article that Jamal sent me a few weeks ago that has just stuck with me really deeply ever since. Um, So it was about Shalon Irving. She was a young, well-educated, black public health researcher who actually had devoted her own career to studying and combating health inequities and access to care. Um, The NPR article about her includes her Twitter bio, which was, I see inequity wherever it exists, call it by name, and work to eliminate it. So she was basically crusading for this cause. Wow. And tragically, ironically, I guess, Shalon died due to complications around her own pregnancy that weren't taken seriously by providers, even though she insisted that something was wrong. She knew her body. She knew that something was not going on with her pain and her healing. Um, and it's just tragic. She should still be alive today. Um, her mom raises her daughter, but uh, she should be here raising her daughter.
1: And, and again, in the, in the article, the, the ProPublica article that I sent you mm-hmm. um, that did a very extensive um, report on like her education and her upbringing, they said, I mean, she was very intelligent. She had oh, yeah. multiple master's degrees yeah.
0: from like Johns Hopkins,
1: yeah. like top schools, and a PhD. Yes, and worked at the CDC to yeah. fight against women health disparities. She
0: was as educated as anyone could be in yeah. this topic, and but, it still but didn't save all her. boiled
1: down. She was a black woman yep. patient who was complaining about pain, mm-hmm. and I'm sure her uh, physician or caretakers completely overlooked it, yeah. um, along the same lines of, uh, that rhetoric that we discussed mm-hmm. earlier. Yeah. Um, that the pain may have been exaggerated or, uh, things like that.
0: Absolutely. So that's really the bottom line is this crisis of rising mortality, rising, rising mortality for black mothers today, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of education. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, It's race. It's a race thing. Like, this is one of those times when we should be talking about race and the way that people are treated because of their skin color. And thinking about this article really drove home for me why looking back at this history and telling the real story is so important. Um, What happened with Sims and with his victims, Anarka, Betsy, Lucy, the others who have been lost to history, it wasn't even that long ago if you think about it. Like, the European colonized area of North America had slavery for longer than it has been abolished. So, if you think about our history. Yeah. yeah, And Sims is still actually being defended in the past recent years, as Jamal went into. But the legacy that he's part of, exploiting black women, ignoring their pain, and exerting the white man's control, and the white woman's. Control over her reproduction is still a grotesque part of US medical care.
1: I agree. And um, this is why we're trying to reclaim the bench, right? We're trying to reclaim the bench. (laughs) We're really trying to just offer um, a greater voice for those who haven't had the ability to tell their own stories. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lucy and Arca and Betsy Betsy never had the opportunity to speak up for themselves. Mm -hmm. They were born and died slaves. And left to their own devices, Defenders of Sims and Glorifier of Sims would leave things intact as they are now. And so, although there may be some slight misconceptions and um, from some of the critics of people like Sims, and maybe there's some uh, misinformation that was lost because some of these things are hard to document, um, the overall story is, if it wasn't for advocates standing up beginning in like probably the 1970s, mm-hmm. people would continue to just look at J. Miriam Sims from one perspective. And so we're just trying to offer in this podcast um, another perspective using the best research that we have. And we don't have all the information, but we do the best job that we can to really try to um, even a score and uh, make sure that uh, the the full story is is completed. So if you want to listen to the full interview with Dr. Nicholas um, that we did talking about women's health, talking about Uh, the vesicovaginal fistulas and some of the procedures that J. Miriam Sims did, then subscribe on Patreon and uh, become a member um, to help support our podcast and to get a firsthand look at exclusive content.
0: And we want to hear from you. So if there's anything that we missed or something that you want us to talk about, uh, any questions you have about going into the medical field, please email us. Uh, Our emails are on the website and we will be regularly checking and we want to interact with all of you and help grow this new generation of scientists.
1: Yeah, I'm Jamal at reclaimthebench.com and I'm
0: Megan at reclaimthebench.com. So next time, we'll be talking about a a woman who did reclaim the bench and Actually, she just claimed the
1: bench for the first time. So
0: stay tuned for Rebecca Lee Crumpler, the first African-American woman to earn an MD in the U.S.
1: I can't wait to talk about that.
0: I know. (laughs) See you later.
1: And also, don't forget to subscribe to Reclaim the Bench on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave a review. This is one of the best ways to support our mission of amplifying the voices of those silenced in scientific and medical discovery. For even more content, including exclusive interviews or a chance to chat with us live, become a Reclaim the Bench patron at Patreon follow us on social media we're on instagram and twitter at reclaim the bench also stop by reclaimthebench.com to see what's on the agenda and to leave comments or suggestions on what topics you'd like to see us cover next and if you'd like to further support our podcasts you can donate through our website funds will help us to maintain the infrastructure necessary to continue delivering new content